before we begin our Torah study, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. In, in this prayer that we pray each time before we study together, there is this idea, um, uh, to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. And it can be translated another way, to take seriously the words of God in the way that we would if it were our business, not the financial side of business, not that. Uh, it's, it's not about being in business, but when you go to work, you have to take your work seriously. You have to master it. You have to, to delve into it. You have to keep learning. If, if when you were in college, you thought you could learn the last things that you needed for your career, then your career probably surprised you. But in this day and age, the ability to learn uh, and to learn new things is really important. In the same way, we need to continually be students of the Word of God and to put effort in to learn how to learn. And so that's an important thing that we need to set our hearts on. And if you say to the Lord, I want to learn how to learn even better, um, then you're taking seriously what Paul told Timothy. Study to show yourselves approved as a workman who can rightly handle the word of God. And it requires study, so if, if you thought, well, I don't mind reading the Bible, but study sounds like work, the answer is yes, it is work. It takes dedication, it takes effort, intention, and a continual building of skills. So keep that in mind. Well, we are reading this week the, the last portion of Torah, and Moses' last words to the children of Israel this is a week and a Shabbat that's called Shabbat Shuva. Say that with me, Shabbat Shuva, uh, which can be translated in two different ways, the Shabbat of repentance, but better Shabbat of returning, of returning to the Lord. And these days of awe are meant to be days in which we return to God. Now, if you haven't gone far away from God, you might think, why do I need to return? I haven't become backslidden. I haven't become uh, someone who went away from God. Well, it's, it's good to refresh your relationship with God and to take seriously all the things that God might have in mind for you and to be open-hearted and open-minded. Lord, what do you want to develop in me this year and in the time that's ahead? to thank him for what he has done, but also to look forward for more. I hope that you want more from the Lord and that you're not complacent about what's ahead. Well, Moses gives us a good example about um, how to live. If you remember, he brought this word which we focused on last week, choose life. It's an important word, choose life. And he brought that word at the time that he knew his own life was wrapping up and was ending and that he would not participate in what he thought would be the consummation of his life, and that is the bringing of the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And he was told that he would not because of 
a particular sin which he had committed. Which is interesting, um, because during this time, this season, on this Shabbat every year, we're in the days of awe, and we're asking the Lord to be merciful to us. And many of us have questions, you know, does God remember sin? Does he remember our sins? And uh, the answer is a little bit complicated, because if we ask this question, does God remember the sin of Moses? Answer, yeah, it's written, the sin of Moses. And what about the sin of Peter? Do you remember when Peter uh, denied the Lord three times? Uh, Well, how do you know that? It's written, right. So when God, when God forgets sin, it's a little different than in English uh, or at the human level sometimes about forgetting. And so we have to develop a deeper understanding. What does it mean for God uh, to not remember our sins? Because it, it doesn't mean that all of them just disappear but rather it has to do with how God views us in light of our sin and how he views our sins in light of us. So Moses is speaking about life at a time when he knows because of his sin he's not going into the land. That's the consequence. And some people would say, yeah, but that was before the new covenant, and then you have to deal with Peter, who was not before the new covenant. And you might say, well, he sinned before the new covenant was inaugurated. But it's in the new covenant scriptures, isn't it? And that's not the only example of sin that, that is there. Well, we've also been focusing on this word that's a, a life message for us, kadima, which means forward, to help us be oriented the way Moses was. Because Moses was not just looking back, he was reviewing but he wasn't wishing for the good old days. Sometimes when you face disappointment or challenge, you you may have this longing for the way things used to be. But Moses had learned from his experience that it's really not good to do that because the children of Israel only got into trouble with God and with him when they did that. Do you remember when they got to that point where they were saying, oh, if we could only be in Egypt. Oh, the leeks and the garlic of Egypt. That's what they were remembering. They were forgetting how uh, their baby children were ripped out of the hands of the mothers and killed, and they were forgetting the slavery and the cruelty that they faced. And they were thinking about uh, dinner and how it was a lot tastier than manna, um, which it was, however. Kadima, forward. So Moses reviews, but he doesn't, He doesn't idealize the past and he doesn't fantasize that it would be better to be back in the past than it would be to be in the life that he was living. And he gives uh, encouragement to the children of Israel to have that same attitude. As you read the Torah portion this week, you'll see that. As well, this important message for us, Lador Vador, from one generation to another generation. This is also part of his message because he is taking his own encouragement about the future, he realizes that he will not fulfill what um, he had hoped to fulfill for himself and by himself, but he actually recognizes and finds joy in the fact that others will come after him who will do even more and who will continue the good work and, and 
He, like I think all the great men and women of faith, finds joy not just in what they attain, but in what they are able to see other people attain, what they are able to see other generations do, finding joy in the success of your children and your grandchildren, and thus investing in them so that they will be successful with God. These are very important things that we can recognize through Moses' teaching. So Moses was strong and he was hopeful before the people, but Moses knew he couldn't be the ultimate redeemer of the people. In fact, it may well be that that the children of Israel were protected from that misdirection. Usually, someone who is such an illustrious religious figure as Moses can become the, uh, the subject of veneration. And even the, the, they can be idealized as if they are almost God themselves. And yet Moses refused that. He, he refused that temptation. He did not allow other people to think of him that way. And even though he did write that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth, you know, which is interesting, he did not communicate that he was without sin. In fact, he said the opposite. He recorded for us in the scriptures that he left us uh, that he himself had sinned. And he also instructed us um, at the direction of God that every high priest would recognize his own sin so that we would never think that the priestly uh, tribe was better than the rest of Israel. Moses was a sinner, and as we're preparing for Yom Kippur, I'm thinking about how meaningful it is for me as a Messianic Jew to think about um, Moses as a good example, but also to think about Yom Kippur and I, I value Yom Kippur, and one of the reasons I value it is because it helps me prepare for that day when we truly will stand before God and give an account, and I want to be ready. I don't, wanna, I don't want to be in shock because I think it's going to be a little scary because of the holiness of God, and I think that that as we're remembering what we have done, that we have regrets about, that there'll be some weeping. Uh, that's what I expect I'm going to be weeping. I don't think I'm going to um, not find salvation and relief, but I want to encourage you to have, uh, to have a good understanding of Yom Kippur so that you can also have a good understanding of the days to come. So with that in mind, I want to turn to a, a different passage altogether. It's in the book of Psalms, Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. And by the way, if I ever get a citation wrong, call it out while we're here. Last week, I did. I had the wrong verse. Um, I had added a 2 to a citation. And uh, I fixed it the next day because... Donna, help me. But I want to encourage you that if you, if you hear a wrong citation, call out the correct one um, just in case because even my copying and pasting is subject to error. Psalm 49, 
verses seven through nine. And, and I wanna start by reading the, the first verse from the Jewish Publication Society. This is a traditional Jewish translation. And it says, no man can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For too costly, this is another translation, too costly is the redemption of their soul and must be let alone forever. And yet, here's another way of putting it, for the redemption of their life is costly and no payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. So I'm combining some translations here in order to provide clarity, but I wanna start by thinking carefully about that first verse. No man can by any means redeem his brother. You can't redeem another person. Now, there is a certain aspect of redemption we've read about in the scriptures, the kinsman redeemer, that has to do with someone falling into um, indentured servitude or because of debt, uh, they are enslaved. And there is a way to redeem those people. It's, it is with money. You pay a price to buy them out. There's a way to redeem land. But what this is talking about is something else. It's to redeem the soul of a person, the eternal soul of a person. You can't do it. Many parents want to. Many parents want to repent for their children's sins. And, and they, they try to embrace this idea that I'm going to do what Daniel did and I'm going to confess the sins of my fathers. Well, I'll confess the sins of my children too. Um, but that, I think, is a misapplication. If, if you try to repent for another person, you'll discover in the end it really doesn't work. You can pray for the gift of repentance that leads to life. You can pray for open hearts. You can pray for uh, tenderness of heart. You can pray for a lot of things that do work and have measurable uh, impact on people. But if you try to repent for people who haven't repented, um, it, it's not really correct. Because if you are doing that, then at the day of judgment, you're gonna be standing before the Lord and you're gonna be the justification for that person? Because your repentance and your, your action brought them redemption? No, the, the psalmist is saying, you can't do that. And the reason is a soul is much too costly. And the payment that's required is so much more than you could ever give yourself. You cannot redeem even your brother. So no one can redeem another person. No one can give to God the ransom for his soul because the ransom for a person's soul, the ransom that allows them to live forever, is too costly for one person to pay for another. And the proof of that is this. You cannot redeem yourself. You cannot pay the price for your own sin, for your own iniquity and own transgression. And in fact, this was the message of the whole sacrificial system in, at the temple, and it was the message of Yom Kippur that you cannot redeem yourself. Now, you can face your sin. You can bring, in the days of old, you could bring 
an innocent animal, and it had to be perfect. It had to be without blemish and without defect. You could bring that to the priest, and the priest would know you're guilty. How would the priest know you're guilty? Because you're coming with a sacrifice for your sin, right? And so the priest had to have a very special attitude. It was so important that the priest had to know that he himself had been forgiven of much so that he could not be hard-hearted to those that came. It was not just a professional job. The, the role of the priest was to help the repentant person find their way back to God. But when the repentant person came, they were required to acknowledge their sin. They had to be clear, this is my sin. And with humility before God, present their sacrifice and basically say, instead of looking at me, look at this innocent one. Because I'm not innocent. I don't have anything myself. And that was training and preparation for something so that a whole nation would learn about repentance and about redemption and sacrifice. But there would be a moment of yearning that would prevail, and the yearning was this. Isn't there really a way to redeem me? If I can't redeem myself, is there not a way? And the Lord knew, yes, there's a way. Now that you're looking, there's a way. Now that you're crying out, there is a way. You see, only God can pay the price to redeem a person. When you think you can redeem yourself, you will do what you think is appropriate to redeem yourself. But only God can pay the price to redeem you. And that's at the foundation of our understanding of what God has done by coming as Yeshua the Messiah. The Lord himself has paid the ransom price because we can never do it ourselves. So in this way, God has become our kinsman redeemer. He's become one of us, and he paid the price to redeem us from the bondage of sin and death. Yeshua came as Lord and Redeemer. He came as Messiah and King. Now, with that in mind, I want to, to look at... I hadn't figured out where I wanted to go next. No, because I, I, I don't want to miss something that I think is really important. Um, so I'm going to jump to it. It's actually at the end of my message. I'm going to jump to the end, and then hopefully it won't be the end. But it may be. But there's some other stuff worth, worth looking at. This is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. And it's in verses 21 through 24. Matthew, interestingly, is, uh, according to the early generations of the body of Messiah, Matthew was written in Hebrew originally. And there were, for some several hundred years, there were um, circulating Hebrew copies of the book of Matthew. It was translated as well into Greek. It was translated into Latin. And then continued to be circulated. Um, but there's good reason to believe it was written in Hebrew for Hebrew speakers and those who were literate in Hebrew. 
verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I want you to connect what Yeshua is saying to what we read in the Psalms. No one can redeem his brother. And connect it to the idea of Yeshua coming as the kinsman redeemer. So, um, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day. Okay, so get, get this clear in your mind. They're going to be standing before the Lord and they are going to be trying to explain to God the basis of their own salvation. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Now, there are a lot of ways to read this, but I want you to read it in a certain way. These are people who are standing before God who have the opportunity to explain to God their own redemption. And this is how they're explaining it. Didn't we do these things in your name? And the reason why it's perplexing is Yeshua said no one will enter the kingdom of heaven except those who do the will of my Father in heaven. So you have to do it on earth as it is in heaven, but it's not enough to say, Lord, Lord. So if you just raised your hand, if you were at some mass event and all you did was raise your hand and say, Lord, Lord, that's not enough. But he says you have to do the will of God, and then there are these people, this is what makes it perplexing, there are people who will say, we did your will. But read it carefully. They'll say to me on that day, they'll be standing before Yeshua, and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons. In your name perform many miracles. Verse 23, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Well, I want to explain to you what I think is actually going on so that this is not confusing to you. Yeshua is refusing these people. He's refusing them even though they're standing before him. Because what are they doing? Think about it carefully. What they're doing is they are saying, I redeemed myself. Here's the proof. I cast out demons in your name. I performed miracles in your name. I prophesied in your name. Their justification is, I did what you told me to do. I did your will. But what they're missing, what they're missing is the first part of the will of God when it comes to redemption is humility and contrition and not confidence in one's own actions. 
The first part is to be lowly before God and to say to God, I have no worthy deeds. I'm not righteous before you. If we're saying, look at everything I did, Lord, then we're saying, what I did myself is the basis of my redemption. And this is what they're telling Yeshua. Can you imagine? Well, this is what many people do. They think that their good deeds are the basis of their redemption. But it's even more subtle than this. It's thinking that they have enough worthy deeds and enough obedience to be justified before God. Now, it's perplexing because Yeshua says you have to do the will of God. But you have to know enough about the will of God to know what the will of God is. And if you simply say, hey, man, I was filled with the Spirit. I did miracles. In your name, I did them. Ho, ho. The Lord will say, next. And I'm sure there will be, as Yeshua says, there will be a great wailing and gnashing of teeth because people will have put their trust in their own redemptive acts. But the psalmist says, the price for your soul is much too great that you could pay for it, for yourself or for anyone. Now with that in mind, let's go to this other passage that I wanted to go to at first, but it was too soon. It's Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. Starting in 10, the Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. Okay, this is very important. They will look on me, the one they've pierced. So this is, this is one who will be pierced. That's what it's speaking about. The look on me, the one they've pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. There will be this moment of contrition, of sorrow, because those who had been ignoring this one who was pierced, or belittling him, or shunning him, or speaking against him, will have such a change of heart that they will be weeping, regretting what they have done. You see, this is practice. This is practice for the day when we stand before the Lord. And, you know, I expect he's going to be nice to us. I mean, I, I don't want you to have the wrong impression. And I expect that the relief that we will experience at his mercy and his love will be uh, amazing. But I won't be surprised if as we're standing there before him, we're just bawling our heads out 
and remembering every awful thing, every failure, every attempt at justifying ourselves, everything that we did, not only to the Lord, but to the Lord's people and to, uh, to, to lowly people and innocent people and so forth. And that's why on Yom Kippur, we know that we need to come to God with humility and contrition and review our failings before him. But we also know that before Yom Kippur, we need to examine ourselves, and when we find that we've sinned against a, um, another person, that we go and make things right with them. Verse 11, on that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves. The clan of the house of David and their wives. The clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. So interesting. Uh, because think of the story of David and Nathan. David was guilty, remember? And Nathan was the one who humbly came to him and led him to repentance. But Nathan's going to be repenting. The clan of the house of Levi and their wives. See, I, I think we're going to be there. And the clan of Shammai and their wives and all the rest of the clans and their wives. I think there'll be weeping and sorrow, even mixed with joy, but not exclusively joy. I think. Though we've had some Yom Kippur's that have been amazingly vibrant and full of life. There's nothing wrong with a serious Yom Kippur, you know, where, whoa, Lord, I have no worthy deeds. Now let's close with Isaiah 53. Because I want to contrast this with Zechariah. See, in Zechariah, they will look upon the one they pierced and weep. In Isaiah 53, it can explain to us why many did not look upon him and weep. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's verse 2. You see, when anyone would look upon him, they wouldn't see anything in particular that would draw them to him or cause them to desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Now here it's useful to remember what the word despise means. It means to turn the eyes, to move the eyes away. And here it's repeated. Like those who hide their faces. You know, you don't want to look. We held him in low esteem. Verse four, yet surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. It's so important to contrast this. We could consider ourselves worthy because of our deeds and consider him unworthy. But he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, he paid the price for us. He suffered for us. He was pierced, verse 5 says, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced, this one. Not for his transgressions, but for ours. And he bore the weight of our iniquity, and he suffered the punishment we deserved so that we can receive the peace we don't deserve. And by the wounds he suffered, we are being healed. Better to translate it that way than as some, uh, some in the faith movement like to translate it. Um, we have been healed. Because that conveys that all healing is past tense rather than uh, moving forward and necessary to experience. We are being healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No wonder this should be Shabbat Shuvah, returning, because we all turned away. And God will look upon him as our sacrifice. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the whole point, that when we stand before God and the question is, what do you have to say for yourself? Our answer should have been well rehearsed. Yom Kippur after Yom Kippur. I have no worthy deeds. He died for me. I couldn't redeem myself. Please look upon his sacrifice. I trust you to look upon his perfect sacrifice instead of looking on my sin. And when you do that, you see, that's where the secret is. <laughs> Unless you do the will of God in heaven on this earth, you won't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what's the will of God on earth? That we would each humble ourselves before God regarding how he redeemed us when we couldn't redeem ourselves. How he would do it. And that we will have laid to rest that temptation to justify ourselves and to offer something of our own good deeds as the explanation for why we should come in. Lord, I was a rabbi. I preached your word. Next. Now, I want to stand before God and say, I have no worthy deeds. I have nothing. That's what we're saying at Yom Kippur. So get ready. Some people say, well, why do we celebrate Yom Kippur? Didn't Messiah already die for our sins? Yeah, I think we're rehearsing. We're practicing. We're getting ready. Lord, I thank you for your continued mercies to us, that you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We have no worthy deeds. Be merciful to us. We trust you, Lord, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. 
We trust you, Lord. Help us make things right with one another. Help us make things right with you. We pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Let's close with Aaron's blessing. Please rise. If you're standing by yourself, I encourage you to move so that you're not by yourself. Thank you, Rabbi. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha. Ye'er Adonai p'navelecha v'yichunecha yisa Adonai p'navelecha v'yasem lecha shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.